You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So this is something we've all experienced before. We've wronged someone we love, and we know it, but we don't want to say sorry. We aren't sure how they will respond. We try to rationalize or or minimize our action. We try to let time heal all wounds. But the problem is the guilt remains, and there is some kind of tension that we can feel in the relationship, and it eats eats away at us. And this, this gnawing feeling only goes away once we set aside our ego, we admit our error, and we are forgiven by the other party. This uneasiness is replaced by restored delight and friendship. Now, how much greater is it for sinners to receive forgiveness from their sins and be reconciled to God? And this is what we'll see in Psalm 32 today. So if you turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 32, um, Janine already read this for us, but I will read it for us again. So Psalm 32. You can follow along in your Bibles or it should be on the PowerPoint. So Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bits and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So my aim today is to encourage, encourage you, encourage us to regularly confess our sins to the Lord to fully experience the joys of our salvation. And we will see this in three points. So the first one is to cherish God's forgiveness. Second is to confess for your joy. And the third is to celebrate God's care. And this we will follow the outline of the text. So let's begin with the first point, cherish God's forgiveness. So most of us are more familiar with Psalm 51. Here David laments over his sin regarding Bathsheba. He has just broken pretty much every one of the Ten Commandments. He has committed adultery. He has lied to cover it up. He has stolen someone's wife. He has murdered the husband. Um, he has dishonored his parents. He has coveted. He's, he's, he's done all that. And he has made his own pleasure his idol. 
Now, Psalm 51 was his lament as he mourned over his sin. And what we have in Psalm 32 is that he wrote this after he received forgiveness. It's, it's his song of joy in response to how God dealt with his sin. Now, now, we are also familiar with another psalm that begins with, blessed is the one. In Psalm 1, the first psalm, it describes someone as blessed who walks in God's way. But here, we have someone who has not walked in God's way, but experiences the blessing of what God, God does in response to that. So if you look, at me, look with me in verse 1, we have two parallel statements speaking of the joy that he has. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. And in the verse two, he continues, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessed is the man in whom spirit there is no deceit. So what we see here is that David uses three nuanced words to describe wrongdoing and then describes how God deals with each wrongdoing. So the first word, transgression, it describes sin in relation to God. It refers to rebellion against him, a a subject of committing treason against a king. And then the second word at the end of verse one, the word sin, it speaks of wrongdoing in relation to the law. It's it's the image of, of missing the mark, not hitting the target, not being quite up to par with a standard. And the third word, iniquity, describes sin in relation to ourselves. It's a a corruption, a a twisting of right standards, but also of self. The sinner is is a twisted and a twisting person. And how does God deal with sin for the one who is blessed? He forgives, as we see, he forgives their transgression. The image of of forgiveness here is to to lift up or to take away a burden. Rebellion against the king is punishable by death. And forgiveness is taking away that ball and chain for someone who is waiting on death row. And for sin, God covers it. He, He puts it out of sight. He blots it out. This is what we see in Psalm 85 verse 2. It says, you forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered all their sin. And then we see in verse two, we see God not counting iniquity or not imputing iniquity against the sinner. And the image here is that of a ledger account where there is something owing on one side of the column. And what the Lord does here is to not count the corrupt and twisted nature against this man's moral account. Instead, what is counted towards him or imputed on his account is the state of being debt-free. So what we see is that the blessing for the sinner is not because he has been an upstanding citizen or a perfect law keeper or he has flawless moral character, but it's in fact in spite of him being a rebel, a lawbreaker, a depraved man. He is most graciously and freely forgiven by the divine action of God. Man cannot forgive himself or herself. Man tries to cover sin by minimizing, by blaming or ignoring. Man cannot remove the red from his account. 
but it is the free and gracious gift of God, a true blessing that man can be forgiven. And then we end in verse two with the blessing of being in a place where your spirit has no deceit. There is no pretending that something is true when it is false. And, and, and what does this look like, being free of deceit? How, how is this blessed state experienced? And for this, we go to our next point. Confess for your joy. Confess for your joy. This is verses three and five. So in these next verses, David gives us a personal testimony of his experience of this blessing of forgiveness. Verse three explains the reason of being blessed when your spirit has no deceit. He begins in verse three by telling telling us of the pitiful state of his existence. When I kept silent, what happened? We see my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. And then at the end of verse four, we see the parallel to this. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The inner, the most durable part of his body, his bones were rotting away. And his strength was sapped up like moisture on a hot day. And those of you guys who are farmers will understand the difficulty that this brings. And this happens because he is groaning all day long. Now, what is, what is he groaning about? He's having a war with his conscience. Remorse and guilt is eating away at him, but he doesn't want to come to God. He is rationalizing his silence and falling prey to false reasoning. You know, maybe, maybe if I stay silent long enough, maybe, maybe God will forget. Maybe God didn't see my actions because he's, he's so busy, busy looking out for all the really evil people out there. You know, I've got to fully understand what I did before I come to God. You know, I'm the king. I, all the kings do this. And if we think about this, don't we often do that as well? Now, his distress is not so much because of his sin, but because, as we see, because of the silence of him covering up his sin towards God. There was deceit in his spirit. And what David experiences here is, is psychological and even physiological effects for covering up sin. And perhaps some of you have experienced this as well. It could be sleepless nights and inordinate amount of anxiety, recurring stomach issues or pain in your body. Now, I'm not saying that, that every physiological or psychological issue finds its root in unconfessed sin, but what we see here is that it does indeed happen. But we see that the ultimate cause behind his turmoil, we see this in the first half of verse four. So look there with me. It says, for day and night, your hand, your hand was heavy upon me. Now, if we've read our Bible, we know that often the Lord's hand is actually a welcome thing. So if we look at, at Isaiah 41, verse 10, this is what we see about the Lord's hand. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But God's uplifting hand is very different from the hand that presses down. That hand is terrible and awful. But what we might see as cruel is actually God's mercy. 
He disciplines the ones he loves. He does not just save them and leave them to their own devices. He trains them for holiness and he presses down on their lives so that they will see that they need to turn back to him. And in verse five, we see that David does indeed turn. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. We see, we see a change. David was silent, but now he comes to the light. He, comes, he stops covering his sin. The, the repetition of the sin terms, the, the iniquity, the sin, the transgressions, it shows that he confessed it all. He stopped covering what he was hiding. He confessed that he was a rebel, a lawbreaker, an evil man, a liar. This is what having a spirit of no deceit looks like. It is a full confession of sin to God who already knows and already sees the heart of man. And then how we see, how, God, how does God respond to David's confession? Does he ask him to perform more sacrifices? Does he ask him to purify himself and to fast for, for six months or longer? No, we see that in verse five, he simply forgives him. Not penance, but forgiveness. The slate was wiped clean. Now you might ask, how? How does God simply forgive iniquity? Does he let every rebel go free without consequence? Does he just blot out sin with his outstretched arm? Does he just, does he just turn a blind eye to what is in the owing column? Is God just a nice and a merciful God, but lacks on morals? No, holy God is not only merciful, but he is just, and therefore sin must be dealt with and punished. Look with me at 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 to 14 to see what happens in the story. So David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So we have a confession from David and forgiveness from the Lord. David's life, his life is spared. But what's the consequence? What do we see in verse 14? Nevertheless, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. We see that the consequence of sin is death. So is God just left then to, to continually punish, to obliterate the next generation for the sins of their parents? Is this justice? Now to our eyes, it seems unfair. How could, how could, how could you do that? But to remain true to his character, God's justice is satisfied only when the penalty for sin is paid. But as we know in reading our whole Bibles, God goes further than this. He sends his own son to pay for sin. Jesus never rebelled against God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, but he was crushed for our iniquities. He bore our rebellion, our sin, our iniquity, our deceit. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. His blood covers the sinner before the eyes of justice. His righteousness is counted, is imputed 
upon those who acknowledge their sin and put their faith in his sacrifice. Forgiveness is freely given by the death of Christ on the cross. And we, we promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how sweet are the words to the sinner's ears. Your sins are forgiven. But the joy, the joy for the one who is forgiven by God, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. And this brings us to our third point and the rest of our passage. Celebrate God's care. Celebrate God's care. God not only forgives sinners who turn from their sin to repent, but he continues to intimately watch over them. And David illustrates this beautifully with a poetic device called a chiasm or a ring structure. So instead of listing ideas sequentially, there are parallel themes at the beginning and the end of a passage and they progressively converge towards a central idea. So think of the, the if you've ever gone you know, target shooting, think of the rings of a target closing in on the bullseye and that's where you want to hit. And that's what we'll see in our passage here. So on the, on the outer ring of our passage, we see an exhortation for the godly to have a Godward orientation. So look with me at the, at the first half of verse six. It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So in light of being forgiven, God's people are invited to come to him in prayer free of condemnation and guilt. Now, now David, he isn't saying here that there is, is some place where God cannot be found, like a location, but what he is stressing is the need and the urgency to come to God. And then if we look ahead to verse 11, we see a similar idea. It says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The godly, those who are considered righteous, those who are upright in heart, they're given a threefold exhortation to express the joy of their forgiveness, their blessedness towards the Lord. We see a Godward orientation. And then moving one layer closer to the center, we see the first aspect of God's care, which is his protection. So look at the end of verse six. It says, in light of this, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The psalmist expresses great confidence that he will be safe during times of turbulence and overwhelming situations. And what's the reason? We see it in verse seven. We see that he has made God his refuge. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God is not just a refuge, but he is his refuge. We saw him earlier hiding from God, and now he hides himself in God. The God who has a and who has pardoned him will surely, will surely preserve him from any trouble. The man who was, who was once, he was groaning in distress. He is now surrounded on all sides by the music of victory. And if we look ahead to verse 10, we see this theme repeated again. This is what it says. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now the wicked, the wicked have many sorrows because of their sin. But unlike David, they have not made the Lord their refuge and they are overcome by their many sorrows. But what surrounds the godly, the ones who trust in the Lord is steadfast love. Now, if we think, how did God reveal himself to Moses on Mount Sinai? This is what we read in Exodus 34, verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, who is himself steadfast love, surrounds his people. We think of of Psalm 46 that we heard a couple months ago. God is the mighty fortress of his people in times of trouble. And then now when we get to verses eight and nine, we get into the center, the, the, the bullseye of what David wants us to focus on. We saw God expressing his care by protecting his people. And now we see that he expresses his care by teaching his people. And the speaker here switches. God himself, instead of David, now speaks to his people. This is what he says. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He does not just bring his sheep into the fold of his protection and leave them to fend for themselves. He does not leave his people out to return to their own lusts and their own desires like before. But he instructs and teaches them. And, and see, see the nearness with which he does it. It's not just someone far off barking directions, but with my eye upon you. So some of you know, I used to, I used to be a karate instructor. And during the class, what we would do is we would, we would walk um, around the, the dojo when people were having class and we would pick things out for people to correct. You know, you know tight fist, uh, proper stance, straight back, stuff like that. But it's different, it's very different, especially for the children, when you come up next to them, when you say, hey, you know, your fist should, should look like this, your thumb has to go over your fingers, let me place your hand in the correct position. And this is what God is doing for his people, right up to them with my eye upon you. And then in verse nine, he urges, God urges his people not to resist his gentle guidance. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What sets apart man from animals is that man has understanding. A fierce, a fierce young stallion needs to be tamed and a, a, a lazy mule needs to be prodded to go in the right direction. And the painful, the, the painful bit and the bridle are there to say, you will do what I say and not just what your animal instincts tell you to do. But man, man has understanding and should listen to reason. They have the capacity for reason. So God is saying, you know, don't be, don't be a beast. Let me guide you. I, I, have, I have saved you and only I can show you how to live in holiness. And as New Testament Christians, as Christians living in this era, there's great reason to be glad in the Lord like our passage tells us. We can be called righteous and upright in heart only because we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. 
hiding place in times of difficulty and during feelings of condemnation is in Christ. Colossians 3 tells us that our life is hidden with Christ in God. We can sing rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We have been given a new heart by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He has been placed within us, as Ezekiel tells us, and causes us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. The Holy Spirit is the counselor teaching us and showing us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How else can we respond but with shouting for joy? But if you're not yet a Christian, you have yet to experience any of this joy. Perhaps you feel that the great rush of waters has indeed reached you, but your normal hiding places have not worked. You have had to bear all your troubles alone. You have not felt the security that comes with having eternal hope in God during times of trouble. Maybe you realize that you, have, that you have messed up in the past, but you are unwilling to come to terms with how far you've gone. Your guilt is, is eating away at you, and you only see the loss that comes with what you have done or thought come to light. You have not yet tasted the sweetness, the sweetness of an unburdened conscience, the removal of your guilt and the forgiveness of your sins. But what you have, what you have heard today in, in this passage is that this joy, this, this sweetness is offered freely to sinners like you. God has spoken to you through his word to show you that as of now, you have not experienced true happiness. You may have beauty, you may have honor and riches, but you do not have forgiveness of your sins. So I, I invite you, come, come to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin. Allow him to cover your iniquity, your sin with his blood. Receive pardon for your guilt and the status of righteousness, being right before God. Trust in the Lord and see that steadfast love will indeed surround you. We see that God promises pardon for sin, but he does not promise tomorrow. Don't wait until then. Come to Jesus today and, and join us in experiencing the joy of free forgiveness in Christ. And for those of us who have received this forgiveness, who have tasted the sweetness of this joy, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pose the same question that Pastor Paul asked us at the beginning of his sermon last week. What will you do with your knowledge of Jesus? What will you do with your knowledge of Jesus? Of Jesus, How can this knowledge about what Christ has done, about what God has done, be invested, as he said, as obedience to him? So let me give you three ways. First thing is rehearse your identity. Rehearse your identity. Psalm 32 was the favorite psalm of Augustine. And as in his last days, as he lay on his sickbed, he had the words of the psalm inscribed on his wall so that he could meditate it on it more readily. And this is what he said comforted him about the message of this psalm. This is what he said. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. 
The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. I said this before to, to many of you, but I'll say it again. When, when my wife Joanne and I, we first came to this church, the phrase we kept hearing people say is, I am a sinner saved by grace. And of the many reasons and people that eventually kept us here, this was super high on the list. This, this pervasive awareness of our identity, of our gospel identity in Christ, that was very attractive. And this is the place where we want to grow and to thrive. When we, when we know our identity, we will be less prone to be fearful of what people think of us. And for myself, this, this has been immensely helpful for someone like me who struggles with the fear of man. When we know we are sinners saved by grace, we can fight feelings of condemnation and guilt with the truth that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let this, let this thought, your gospel identity, let this be the first thought when you open your eyes in the morning. Savor that truth as you're, as you're lying in bed before you get out of bed and all the busyness of the day starts. Another way is, is pa- Pastor Tim has encouraged me to, to redeem technology and to use notifications in, in a good way, to um, have a notification that reminds you at different points of the day of key truths that you should be meditating on. So at 9 a.m. every day on my phone, I see present myself, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's, it's, it's really a modern version of, of binding truths on our foreheads. Another way is as, as we thank God three times a day for our meals, thank him again for your salvation. Come, come to our Sunday gatherings, our, our prayer meetings, our small groups, where this truth that we are sinners saved by grace, it is central and that you will be challenged to live this out in faith. And these are just some of the many ways that we can rehearse our identity in Christ. And this, this helps us with our second way of application, which is confess sin specifically. Confess sin specifically. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this psalm and confession. He says, a child of God will confess sin in particular. An unsound Christian will confess sin by wholesale. He will acknowledge, this this unsound Christian, he will acknowledge that he is a sinner in general. whereas Whereas David does, as it were, point with his finger to the sore. Point with his finger to the sore. A sinner saved by grace wants fresh grace for each sin. He is not afraid to lay bare before God the individual and detailed ways that he has fallen short of God's glory. God already knows and God already sees. She yearns for forgiving grace to cover each sin and sustaining grace to fight for holiness. So instead of, of me just confessing pride, I can say, Father, last night when I, was, when I couldn't go to sleep because I was worried about the next couple months or, or even tomorrow, I was not trusting you. In, in me thinking that I could control my life and what happens tomorrow, I was fighting for supremacy with you. You are God and I am not. Be merciful to me and forgive me. Instead of just confessing anger, you can say, 
you know, Father, you are slow to anger, and in your anger, you never sin, but I have. When I fumed silently against my spouse, when I reacted harshly to my children, when I, when I ignored the messages of my annoying friend or my annoying coworker, I was, anger, I was angry and I sinned. My anger was protecting what I value and what I love, and I was only loving myself. My anger exposed the idolatry in my heart. Forgive me and help me to put off anger and to put on Christ-centered love. Confess sin specifically. And then lastly, the third way we can apply this passage is to prepare for deliverance. Prepare for deliverance. So listen to what William Plummer has to say. He says, experience of God's mercy in the past should fasten resolution to make use of faith for the future in all troubles. After one trouble, the godly should prepare for another. After one delivery, expect another. So in, in our spiritual sojourning in this, in this broken world, we will, we will have troubles. We, all of us, in different ways, we prepare for hard times. We save money, we, we pickle vegetables, we, we do so much ahead of time to prepare for a rainy day. But do we prepare for God to come through like he says he would, like he has promised he would? Do we expect his protection in times of trouble, his, his gentle guidance in times of uncertainty? A, f- a friend was, was saying to me recently that in this past year, he's been able to look back and see the, the different ways that God has unexpectedly answered his prayers and given him faith. And and what he's doing is in this next year, he's looking forward to seeing how God will do the same thing again in the coming year. So let's all have have this posture, expectant hope in the triune God who saves and cares for each one of his people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for forgiving me of my sins of casting them in the ocean, of removing them as far as the east is from the west, and doing the same for my brothers and sisters here. Father, we pray that because of our identity in Christ, because of our forgiveness, that you would give us the grace to come to you often, to confess our sins to you, and receive again the grace of forgiveness. Help us to do this, Father, for for our joy and for your glory. And we pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.